I appreciate so much the opportunity to be with you again, and I hope you brought your Bible with you and are eager to take that and study with us. I encourage you to be turning in your Bibles to the ninth chapter of the Gospel of Mark. And here we have the story of the healing of the epileptic son. There are parallel accounts found in Matthew 17 and in Luke 9, and we'll give some passing attention to Matthew 17 in a few moments. But we're going to focus the story at Mark 9. Now, Mark does not tell us that the problem with the son was that he was an epileptic, but Matthew does. But we want to read Mark's account of this beginning at verse 14. So if you don't already have your Bible open, we're going to be spending our time in Mark 9 this evening. So get a Bible if perhaps there's one in a few close by. And let's look at Mark 9 beginning at verse 14. And when he came to the disciples, he saw a great multitude around them and the scribes disputing with them. And immediately when they saw him, the people were greatly amazed and running to him greeted him. And he asked the scribes, what are you discussing with them? And then one from the multitude answered and said, Teacher, I brought to you my son who who has a mute spirit. And wherever he seizes him, he throws him down and he foams at the mouth and gnashes at the teeth and becomes rigid. So I spoke to your disciples that they should cast him out, but they could not. And he answered and said, O faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought him to him, and he saw him. Immediately the spirit convulsed him, and he fell to the ground, and he wallowed, foaming at the mouth. So he asked his father, How long has has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. And often he's thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said, if you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. And immediately the father cried out and said, with tears, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw the people come running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to him, You deaf and dumb spirit, I command you to come out of him and enter enter him no more. Then the spirit cried out and convulsed him greatly and came out of him and became as one dead. He became as one dead, and many said he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he came into the house, disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast him out? So he said to them, this kind comes out by nothing but prayer and fasting. Let's talk about the setting for the story. Beginning at verse 14 through verse 16 tells us something of the setting. Jesus has been at the Mount of Transfiguration and Jesus and three disciples that had been with him have just come down from the Mount of Transfiguration. Verses 2 to 13. There was a large crowd gathered and they're... they're disputing and arguing over something. And so Jesus goes to them and says, what is it that you're discussing? What are you disputing about? The problem was explained by the father of the son who had an evil spirit. Here's what the father said. The father said, my son, you see, has an evil spirit, verses 17 and 18. He said, I brought, I, I was coming to you and I'm Paraphrasing, of course, but I was coming to you, he said, 
But you weren't here, and so I talked to your disciples and asked them if they could do something and try to cast him out. But you see, they failed in that. How disappointing that must have been. That was a setback for the father. He's anxious to have something done about his son, and he brings his son to Jesus, but Jesus isn't there. So could you, the nine disciples, could you do something about this man, my son? And they failed to cast him out. What a setback that must have been. Here was Jesus' response to that, beginning at verse 19 through verse 29. Jesus, first of all, verse 19, He rebukes the Jews and the scribes for their unbelief. He said, O faithless generation, how long shall I bear with you? He rebukes them. We'll say more about that in a moment. Secondly, they brought the Son to Him. He said, Bring Him to me. And they did. And he convulses and he foams at the mouth and has a spell. And Jesus asks the father, how long has it been going? Well, since childhood this has been going on. Well, the next thing we notice is the father expresses doubt. He said, I brought him to your disciples, but they couldn't do anything. They failed in that. Notice verse 22. He expresses doubt. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us. He expressed doubt. Then in verse 24, he cries out. Notice he cried out with tears and said, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. He cries out to, to Jesus for help. In 25 to 27, the son then was healed. Jesus commanded the spirit to come out of him, and he did. Left him as dead, but Jesus lifted him up, and he was again, of course, alive, the text tells us. Well, when the disciples get off privately to Jesus in the house, they ask, why couldn't we do what you just did? Why couldn't we do that? Jesus explained it was because this only comes out by prayer and fasting. But Matthew records it this way, which is saying the same thing, which you'll notice in a moment. It was because of your unbelief that you couldn't cast him out. And that's the story we just read. Now, what I want you to notice is this is a story of faith and doubt. Three times in this short story, there is a focus on faith or doubt. First of all, I want you to notice there was a broad statement to the Jews. When Jesus comes on the scene, what are y'all disputing about? Well, I brought my son to you and, and I took him then to your disciples and they couldn't cast out this demon. He doesn't immediately turn to the disciples, but he turns to the Jews and the scribes, and he says, oh, faithless generation, he said. That was intended for the Jews and the scribes. But I want to tell you, he must have had some thought of his own disciples because he talks about them later, doesn't he? Oh, faithless generation. He focuses on their lack of faith. That is the generation as a whole. Secondly, I want you to notice the father expressed doubt. Go back to verse 22 now. The father expressed doubt. He said, if you can do anything. Verse 22. You see, the father was half doubting, half in despair. Pulpit observes. While that statement referred to Jesus, obviously, if you can do anything, he has to be pointing at the failure of the the disciples. If you can do anything because they didn't and they couldn't, it makes me wonder if you can. I'm trying to describe for you this is a story of faith and of doubt. Linsky said it 
best when he said when he qualifies this petition with the clause, if thou art able in any way, we should remember the setback his faith received when the nine disciples of Jesus failed to accomplish anything. This if refers to that failure. How true. But then thirdly, the disciples were told the problem here as to why you failed was your lack of faith. Why couldn't we do that? In Matthew's account, it was because of your unbelief. Now get the three points. This is a story about faith and of doubt. Because Jesus, when he sees what's going on, said, you're a faithless generation. The father then expresses his doubt. And then he turns to the disciples and said, you have a lack of faith. Is what you have. It is a story of faith in that. Let's focus at verse 24. I want you to notice the Father's cry. At verse 24, Jesus, he had said, if you can do anything. And Jesus said, at verse 23, he said, if you can believe all things are possible to him who believes. And immediately the Father cried out with tears, saying, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. If you're so disposed to underline things in your Bible, you might underline that phrase, help my unbelief. Notice the paradoxical phrasing. I believe, help my unbelief, he said. He claims to have faith, but he recognizes his weakness. He had faith, but he craves even more, Robertson observes. Notice some translations of that uh, phrase. The NLT says, help me overcome my unbelief. The Amplified says, help my weakness of faith. The living Bible says, I do have faith. Oh, help me to have more. Here's the point. The point is that we must recognize what is lacking in order to fill the void. That's true of anything, isn't it? If you do not recognize you have a lack of love in your heart, you'll never fill it up with more because you don't recognize there's a lack. The same thing is true of knowledge. If I don't recognize I'm lacking in knowledge, I never fill the void. Well, the same thing is true of faith. We must recognize what is lacking in order to fill the void. Again, I quote from Linsky. Speaking of this cry out saying, Help my unbelief, this too was well, for they who feel their lack of faith are in the best condition for removing this lack. I say, amen. So let's talk tonight about help my unbelief. This was the cry of the Father. Lord, I believe, he said. But help my unbelief, he said. Let's look at some things in this context and then some things perhaps that we can make in application even from this context. How we need to be making that same cry to the Lord. Lord, help my unbelief. I believe, Lord, I have faith. But help my unbelief. What was the Father saying and what should we be saying? When we cry out to God saying, Lord, help my unbelief, it may be as the Father was saying, that is, this Father in this context, Lord, help me have stronger faith. Oh, I do have faith, all right, but I want stronger faith. Help me increase my faith. That ought to be our cry. I want to suggest to you that it is possible to have faith and yet it not be as strong as it should be. Evidence? You remember the disciples were told repeatedly they had little faith. Oh, ye of little faith. Matthew 6, verse 30, 8 in verse 26. So it's possible to have faith, but your faith be little, the text says. Peter was warned that his faith would fail. 
Jesus said, I prayed for you that your faith fail not, but when you are converted, in other words, your faith is going to fail. Your faith can fail. You can have faith and it fail. The bottom falls out of your faith. It's also possible to have a weak faith. Abraham was not weak in faith. That implies some people do have weak faith. All I'm trying to suggest to you is it's possible to have faith and it not be as it should be. Now, your faith that you have, whatever degree it may be, can be shaken. You may have strong faith. But your faith can be shaken. Let's go to the New Testament now. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. You remember when Paul left Thessalonica after establishing the church there. He left it in a cloud of persecution. He was concerned, how does that church fare now? I've left them. and In fact, the reason he left was that they may do better with him absent because he may be the one that they're after. And so in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 3, he said that none of you should be shaken by these afflictions. You see, it may be that I'm shaken by the pressure of the world. I'm shaken by the pressure of opposition. That can shake my faith. While we're in Thessalonians, let's go over to the second letter. You remember there was a misunderstanding about the second coming. Some were teaching a false doctrine that said the second coming was imminent. And so in chapter 2 and in verse 2, he said that you should not be soon shaken in mind or troubled, either by spirit or word or by letter, as if from us, that the day of the Lord is had come. What's he saying? That that someone perhaps had, had forged a letter saying that and saying this was from the apostles and teaching this false doctrine and this false concept, this error, could shake your faith. And it had shaken some. It might be that we might be shaken by neglect. If we neglect so great salvation. Or it might be that we're shaken by the failure of others. And notice the text, that's Mark 9, 22. That was what the Father had just said. You remember, He's the one that came running to Jesus and He says to Jesus, if you can do anything. He was shaken by the failure of the disciples. Barclay said this, originally had come seeking for Jesus Himself. Since Jesus was on the mountain, he had to deal with the disciples and his experience of them was discouraging. His faith was badly shaken, so badly shaken that when he came to Jesus, all he could say at first was, help me if you can. Then face to face with Jesus, suddenly his faith blazoned up again. I believe, he cried. It sometimes happens that people get less than they hope for from some church. Or from some servant of the church. When that happens, they ought to press beyond the church to the master of the church. Beyond the servant of Christ to Christ himself. The church may at times disappoint us. And God's servants on earth may disappoint us. But when we battle our way face to face with Jesus Christ, he never disappoints us. See, your faith may be shaken by pressure. It may be shaken by error. It may be shaken by your disappointment in disciples. And your faith is shaken. I want to suggest to you that your faith will only be strengthened through the Word. You are very familiar. You're with Romans 10 and in verse 17. Faith is built, it's strengthened, and it's maintained by the Word of God. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word. Only the time that we spend with the Word is going to build and strengthen and maintain our faith. 
The Apostle Paul said to the elders of the church at Ephesus, I commend you to the word of His grace, which is able to build you up. How are they going to be built up? By the word of His grace. So the word is that which builds us up. Now, don't expect your faith, friend, to get any stronger. Don't ever expect it to get any stronger when we spend very little time reading the Word. When we leave our Bibles at the church building and we haven't cracked the Bible open at all since the last church service last Sunday or the week before, and we haven't read and studied our Bibles and we're crying out, Lord, I need more faith. Help my unbelief is not going to get any better if you're spending very little time with the Word. Listen to this very carefully as I suggest you. When we spend more time reading and listening to things about the Word than we do in studying the Word, our faith isn't going to get any stronger. I want to tell you, I know of Christians who who have the concept, when they have questions about creation, when they have questions about the interpretation of the Scriptures, they spend more time on YouTube listening to what somebody says about the Bible than reading the Bible itself. And their faith isn't getting any stronger. It's not getting any stronger. But let's go further. Here is the goal. To have a faith that fully trusts in God. You say, how do you know? Let's go back to our context in Matthew cha- or Mark chapter 9. The Father didn't fully trust. If you can do anything. Remember that? So Jesus in the very next verse, verse 23, calls for Him to fully trust. If you can believe it's possible. I want you to fully trust me. He turned to the disciples and he said, you don't fully trust me. It was because of your unbelief that you couldn't do this. All through the context. He's saying, you don't trust, you don't trust, you don't trust. So when the disciples were asking, what would it have taken for us to do that? He said, only by prayer and fasting. He's saying the same thing there that he did in Matthew 17. It was because of your unbelief. What does it mean by prayer and fasting? Prayer is that which suggests that faith and trust in God is going to respond. That if I'm truly praying unto God, I have faith. That I am praying that God's going to respond and I believe He's going to respond. Fasting would suggest that I have faith enough that God will help and He will provide. And He's talking about a faith that puts its full trust and confidence in God Himself. I believe, he said, Lord, help my unbelief. May I cry be, Lord, help me to become stronger in my faith. But secondly, the Father may be asking and is asking, Lord, I believe, help me in my unbelief. Help me settle my doubts. Help me settle my doubts. I want to tell you, the Father had doubts. Look back at verse 22. He said, but if you can do anything. If suggest, he had a question in his mind. He is not saying, I do not believe you can. But he has questions. He has doubts. And perhaps good reason for it. The disciples' failure had led him to that point. He must have had some confidence because the text says, go back with me to verse, uh, uh, look at verse 17. He said, teacher, I brought, uh, brought you, my son. I was coming to you. He had confidence in Jesus. 
But your disciples couldn't do anything. And that seemed to have led to the conclusion, if they can, I'm wondering if you can. He's not saying, I don't have any faith at all, but I have some questions. His request was, I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. Help me with my doubts. Help me with my doubts. I want to tell you, there's going to be times we have doubts, even though we have faith. Peter did. You remember the occasion when, when the Lord was walking on the water and Peter, and I'm paraphrasing, of course, said, would you let me come to you? And Jesus said, come, and he did. And then he began to sink. Remember what the Lord said to him? Why did you doubt? Peter had faith, didn't he? But he had doubts. This one's interesting to me. Luke chapter 24. This is true of us today sometimes. The disciples saw something they couldn't explain. Therefore, they had doubts. Do you remember when Jesus came to them? Look at verse 36. Luke 24, verse 36. He came and stood in their midst and he said, Peace to you. And they were terrified and frightened, supposing they'd seen a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? I want you to get this picture. The disciples had doubts when they saw something they couldn't explain. And quite often, disciples of the Lord today, when they hear something they can't answer, they hear something the critics say and the scoffists say about the Scriptures. They don't know how to answer and they don't know how to explain. And now they have doubts. We sometimes have questions and doubts as well. But here's what I want you to see. Doubts can be and they must be settled. That was what the Father was asking, wasn't it? Look at verse 24 again in Mark chapter 9. He said, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. And that's what the Father does in healing His Son. But I'm interested at this juncture to go to Acts chapter 17 in verse 11. You remember this passage where the Bereans were commended for being more noble than those in Thessalonica because... Because what? They received the word with all readiness of mind. They were open-minded, but not gullible. They were open-minded, though. They're willing to listen. They're willing to entertain. They're willing to examine. But notice what else the text says. They searched the Scriptures daily to find out whether the things were so. They had doubts. If they didn't have any doubts, why were they searching to find out if it was so? They already knew it was so, or they knew it was false. They heard the preaching of Paul, and Paul will say something about the Old Testament Scriptures foretelling of the Christ. Isaiah said thus and so, or Jeremiah said, or Amos said. They have questions about that. So they go searching through the scrolls to find out if that was true. Notice what else the text says, though. What I wanted you to see is they settled their doubts. Go with me now to Acts 17 again, if you've, if you've left there. Very next verse. They searched the Scriptures whether the things were so. Now verse 12. Therefore many of them believed. They settled their doubts. They didn't go the rest of their life with doubts. I've got questions. I don't understand. I don't understand this thing about Jesus being the fulfillment of the Old Testament. I've got questions. I've got doubts. Oh yes, they had doubts. They settled their doubts. By searching the Scriptures to see if those things were true. Lord, I believe, help thou my unbelief. 
Father is saying, help me increase my faith. Help me to grow stronger in my faith. And help me settle my doubts. Let's make some application of that same phrase that may not be peculiar to this same context, though. We very well could cry out to God and say, help my unbelief. I believe, but help my disobedience. Because that is equated with unbelief, is it not? You see, disbelief is unbelief. Disobedience is unbelief. Let me give you evidence of that. Let's turn to Numbers 20. Do you remember when God gave instructions to Moses? To Moses? Of going and speaking to the rock and water would come forth from the rock. Pretty simple instruction, isn't it? Moses in his frustration smote the rock, the text says. Remember that? That means he was disobedient. He didn't do what God told him to do. Look at Numbers 20 and verse 12. Numbers 20 and verse 12. The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and said, Because you did not believe me. I thought they disobeyed. They did. But God called that unbelief. God called that unbelief. Why would that be unbelief? Because when you're disobeying, you're doing your own will and rejecting the will of God. You don't believe God. And because faith, you see, involves listening and obeying. By faith, Abel offered unto God more excellent sacrifice than Cain. It means listening and obeying. Moses listened, but he didn't obey. And what I want you to understand is that every act of obedience is a crack in our faith. There may be times that I'm going to do what God told me not to do. Like James 2 and verse 9. If you have respect of persons, you commit sin. Well, we know we're not supposed to do that. We know we're not to show respect of person and favor one because of their wealth or their education or whatever the case may be. Give them preference and say, oh, I want you to sit here on the front row because that's an esteemed seat. Because you are rich, but the poor, I want you to sit somewhere else. We know better than that. But in the moment when I get carried away with that, when I do what God told me not to do, that's a crack in my faith, you see. The same thing is true when I neglect to do what God told me to do. That's a crack in my faith. So the cry, when I say help me with my unbelief must be help me to be stronger in faith and be more obedient. Help me to grow in favor and more pleasing unto God. Grow in the grace and in the knowledge of the Lord. Growing in grace more favorable to God. Second Peter 3 and in verse 18. Help me to be mature in the faith like Philippians 3.15 so described. Help me to be stronger and more mature and more obedient. And less times that I do what I know I shouldn't be doing. And less times that I'm failing where I ought to be obedient to the Lord. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. That cry may include this. Lord, I believe, but help me in my rejection of your word. What I want to suggest to you is this, that it's altogether possible to have faith and at the same time reject a portion of the word of God. You say, I don't know about that. Well, let's take Luke 1 and see if that's the case. You remember Zacharias, the father of John the Baptist, Luke 1? Let's go there and see if he was a man of faith. Well, he certainly was, because Luke 1, as we're introduced to him, and in verse 6, we're introduced to Zacharias and his wife Elizabeth, that they both were righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord, blameless. Sounds like faith to me, doesn't it, you? 
How could you be one that walks in the, in the commandments of the Lord and the ordinances and righteous before God and blameless if you don't have faith? He was a man of faith, obviously. He's a priest. He's serving before the Lord. And you'll recall that as he was serving there before the Lord, an angel came to him and told him he was going to have a son. And how he'd go before the Lord, the spirit and the power of Elijah. How did he react to that? Well, I want you to notice at verse 18, he said, How shall I know this since I'm an old man and my wife is well advanced in years? Quite a different reaction than Abraham had. Remember, Abraham accepted that. But Zacharias is saying, I don't know. I don't know about this. How, how do I know this is true? See, I'm old. My wife is old. You say we're going to have a child? Is that what, you're telling me we're going to have a child. How do I know this is true? Look at verse 20. Look at verse 20. And behold, you shall be mute and not able to speak till the day these things take place because you did not believe my words. Here was a man who had faith and yet he had rejected a portion of the Word of God. And I want to suggest to you that he knew and he understood exactly what it said. It wasn't that it was confusing. I'm not, under, I'm not getting the message. I don't know really what the angel is saying. He well understood. That's why he had problems accepting it. It's because he knew what it said. He knew exactly what it meant. You're saying we're going to have a child. The reason he rejects it, it didn't seem to fit with human reasoning. How can this be at our age to have a child? How can that be? Zacharias could well say, I have faith, I believe, but help me in my rejection of the word. I want to tell you, there may be times that it's hard to believe what God said. For one, maybe not for you, but for some, it may be baptism. Mark 16, 16. You tell them. Here's what the text says. You must be baptized in order to be saved. He that believeth in his baptized shall be saved. I, 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 can't, I can't see that. I can't, I can't really see that I'm, I'm lost and then I go through water and now I'm saved. I, I don't understand the connection. I just don't see that. They have a hard time believing what God said. For someone else, it may be the disobedient will be lost. Second Thessalonians 1. That those who disobey are going to be lost. They'll lose their soul because they didn't obey the gospel. They can't, they can't buy that. Have a trouble believing it. For someone else, it may be there is an eternal hell. Well, the fire is not quenched and the worm doesn't die. And I just can't fathom, I can't accept that a loving God's going to punish people eternally. I just can't, I don't, I don't get it. I don't understand it. And I want to tell you there's some Christians that have problems with this understanding that God created the world instantly. He spoke it and it was done, Psalm 33 says. And they can't fathom how that could be. How, how, could, how could this God, how could all of this be done in six literal days? I don't, I don't understand how it could be instantaneous. It looks like it would take millions and millions and millions of years like the scientists say. For someone else, they have trouble believing this, that Jonah was swallowed by a great fish. You're expecting me to believe that a man was swallowed by this fish and he lived there and he came back out a lot? You, you, that's what you're telling You expect me to believe that? Everybody knows that's a fable, don't they? They have trouble believing. And for somebody else, it's the serpent was a real serpent that spoke to Eve. 
You're telling me that a, that a serpent, a real serpent, was speaking and verbalizing and saying words to Eve. That's what you're telling me in Genesis 3. And so when we started with baptism, you say, I don't understand why people can't understand that. But I want to tell you, when we get down toward the bottom of that, we have Christians among us sometimes have trouble believing those very things. Oh, they have faith, all right. But they're rejecting a portion of the word. Our cry needs to be that may God help me with my lack of confidence in the word. Help me to believe what God says. Help me to have the faith like Abraham had. Because the text says, him not being weak in faith was fully convinced that what God had promised he was also able to perform. If God said a man was swallowed by a great fish, I believe that. If God says that a serpent spoke to Eve, I believe that. If God says the world was created in six days, I believe that. Help me to have the faith that I read about Abraham having. Let's go back to our context though. Back to Mark 9, Matthew 17. The man said, I believe, help my unbelief. While that was not the cry of the disciples, they did go to Jesus and say, why couldn't we do that? And their cry should have been, Lord, help our unbelief, help us to, help me when I fail to use the faith I have. Now let's see that in the context of Matthew and in Mark. You see, the disciples had faith, but they didn't use the faith they had. Let's go to Matthew chapter 17. This is the parallel account now to our text in Mark 9. Go to Matthew chapter 17. Same story, same event, Matthew 17. Now at verse 20, they had asked you, why couldn't we do that? And he said, because of your unbelief. For assuredly, I say to you, if you have the faith as a mustard seed, that's the smallest of all seeds, you will say to the mountain, move here, from here to there, and it will move. And nothing will be impossible to you. However, this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. What's Jesus saying to the disciples? He's saying, you're, you're probably, yeah, you have a lack of faith. That's true you, because of your unbelief. But if you had faith as a grain of a mustard seed, if you even had a small amount of faith, you could say to the mountain, be moved. Point seems to be that if you had used what faith you have, you could have worked this miracle. You didn't even use the faith that you had. Let me show you a parallel to that. Not to that exact event, but a parallel phrase. Luke chapter 17. Let's go to Luke chapter 17. In Luke 17, Jesus talks about, if one has sinned, you rebuke him, and if he repents, you forgive him. And if he comes to you seven times in a day, seven times in a day comes to you saying, I repent, you shall forgive him. That seemed kind of hard, doesn't it? Well, the disciples thought so too. So they said at verse 5, increase our faith. In other words, we don't know if we have the faith to do that. Do you remember how the Lord responded to that? Well, one of the things He said at verse 6 was, if you have the faith as the mustard seed, you can say to the mulberry tree, be pulled up by the roots and be planted in the sea, and it will obey you. The question is not always uh, having greater faith, but using the faith you have. If you even have faith like the mustard seed, and you use that faith, you can do great things. Here's what I want you to understand. It is not always a matter of how much faith, but using the faith we have to do what we know. Let's take the case in Luke 17 of forgiveness. 
One comes to you and he says, I repent, you shall forgive him. If he comes to you seven times in a day saying, I repent, you shall forgive him. You mean I'm to forgive him again for the sixth and then the seventh time that same day? Seems hard. It's not a matter that you need greater faith to do that. Just use the faith you have. Maybe it's Bible study. Boy, boy, if I just had stronger faith, I think I would study more. Not a question of having greater faith. Maybe it may just be using the faith that you have. You already have enough faith you know you ought to be studying. The same thing is true with attending. Maybe somebody comes on Sunday morning and they never come back until the next Sunday morning. And they've heard enough preaching and teaching. They should have grown enough. And you say, well, if they just had greater faith, I think they'd attend. They already have enough faith they could do better than that. And that's what Jesus is telling His disciples. Maybe it's being the mate that you should be. Maybe it's being kind. Maybe it's teaching others. Boy, if I just had great faith, I think I could teach others. You already have enough faith to do that. Here's the point I want you to see. Your faith may be lacking. But you have enough faith to do better than you are. I told yesterday in the pulpit about one of our members years ago. I was laboring in the pulpit to make a strong point about how we need knowledge. We need to grow. We need to increase in knowledge. We need to study. We need to know the Scriptures. I felt good about the point I had made. I thought that was really good. And one brother come out and said, that ain't our problem. We already know more now than we're doing. (laughs) He's right. We do know more than we're doing. The cry for faith needs to include, Lord, help me when I fail to use the faith I have. Anytime I fail to do what I know I should be doing, when I fail in that, I'm failing to use the faith that I have. One more time, let's go back to our text. Cry of the Father was, help my unbelief. He said, I believe, but help my unbelief. This Father seems to be crying out for help in the midst of emotional turmoil. He was torn and rent asunder about His Son. Let's give evidence of that at verse 24. You see, the Father was frustrated with the emotional turmoil over His Son. In fact, let's go back to verse 22 first. Back at verse 22 of Mark chapter 9, he said, If you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Notice the us. He doesn't just ask, help my son. My son needs help. But when you help him, you're helping me. He feels with his son. He's suffering with his son. So if you can do anything, have mercy and compassion on us and help us, if you will, when you heal my son, if you can. But notice verse 24. And immediately the father of the child cried out and said with tears. He didn't just come and say kindly or at least kind of uh, mildly. You see, Lord, I do believe. I wish you'd help my unbelief. He's crying with tears. I believe. Help my unbelief. He's stricken with emotional turmoil. And I want to suggest to you emotional turmoil could plague any of us at any given moment. Wayne Jackson said it best when he said, No one is characterized by red-hot faith around the clock. Amen. You see, you may feel like your faith is red-hot right now. And you say, my faith is strong. It's been growing. It's been building. Things are going well. The bottom may fall out tomorrow. 
And you may face things that are going to put you in a downward spiral. For one, it may be their own impending death. They just got news you have two weeks to live. For another, it may be someone in their family. They just got the news. They don't have long. That'll shake your faith. That'll test your faith. For another, it may be family stress they're going through. It may be turmoil within the family. It may be bitterness within the family. Between the husband and wife or between the parents and the child. For another, it may be the job pressure. They're at their wit's end with their job. For another, it may be sickness they're facing. They don't know how long this will last or if they'll ever get over it. For another, it may be their concern for others. Maybe it's in their family. Maybe it's a friend, co-worker. And there's emotional turmoil and there's emotional stress. And what I want to suggest to you is that when we're under emotional turmoil, we can still have faith and yet we struggle. Job did, didn't he? Let's go back to the book of Job for just a moment. I want you to notice he was a man of faith. Oh, he had faith. Go to Job 19 first, and then we'll go backwards to to chapter 6. Look at Job 19. This is that great declaration of faith in Job 19 in verse 25. He said, I know that my Redeemer lives, and He shall stand at last on earth. Here's one thing I hold to without giving up and nobody's going to ever take that from me. I believe in God. I know my Redeemer lives, he said. I believe. But if anybody ever cried for help me with my unbelief, it must have been Job. Look back at chapter 6. Look at chapter 6. He said, for then it would have been heavier than the sands of the sea, therefore my words have been rash. In other words, I'm hurting. I'm under stress. I've lost my children. I've lost my home. I've lost my possessions. I've lost my health. I've lost it all. I'm hurting. I say things I don't mean sometimes. For the arrows of the Almighty are within me. God's shooting target practice at me. He lashes out at God. He was a man of faith. But he struggled. The father did. The father in our story in Mark chapter 9. He struggled. He had faith. He said, I believe. Help me with my unbelief. He cried with tears saying that. Jackson said this. He said, be that as it may, sometimes we are hurting so badly. And pain can generate confusion. Our hearts may overpower our heads. By that we mean this, our agony forces clear logic to the side and we begin to think with our feelings. We still believe that we are angry. We feel neglected. We don't understand why God doesn't rush to our beck and call. We sometimes pout. We refuse to talk to Him. That is, we don't pray. We think we'll punish Him by refusing to assemble with other Christians for worship. We may even have harsh words and thoughtless things to say to Him, almost literally shaking our fist in His face. Times like these, we need to get a hold of ourselves and give ourselves a good shaking. We need to cry out, Lord, help my unbelief. 
We need to ask for His patience. We need to weep before Him. We need to analyze our situation and attempt to determine if we have contributed to our own problems. And if so, is there anything that we can do to remedy the circumstance? We must absolutely, absolutely must not do, is give in to our frustrations once we see struggling with our faith and let it slide. We're headed down a slippery slope that may lead to eternal ruin. What a horrible thought to contemplate. Lord, I believe, but help me in my times of unbelief. What an interesting story in Mark 9. Of a father in his frustration comes running to Jesus. He's not even there. So he turns to the disciples and they fail. So he runs back to Jesus when he finds him and said, if you can do anything, have compassion on me. Help us. Well, if you believe. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief, he said. And we need to be making the same cry. Lord, help my unbelief. Help me to have stronger faith. Help me settle my doubts. Help me in my disobedience. Help me in my rejection of your word. Help me when I fail to use the faith that I have. And help me in the midst of emotional turmoil. Oh, I do believe, Lord. But help me in my unbelief. There may be one or more present who's not a Christian, who's not a child of God. Would you come believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? Would you repent of your sins, acknowledge your faith in Christ, and be buried in the waters of baptism for the remission of sins. If you're subject in any way, would you come while together we stand and while we sing?